Good morning. So good to be able to be with you this morning as we've gathered together to worship our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, what we're doing this morning now as we continue in our series in the Psalms is that as you're turning to Psalm 73, you're going to notice that we have now transitioned from book two to book three in the Psalms. Now, what's fascinating to you and fascinating to me is that there are 70, there are 17 Psalms in book three that deal with the devastation of Israel at the hands of Israel's enemies. What's interesting is that in book two, the psalmist has gone out of his way to communicate grace, the good news of the Messiah to come to these nations. And what do they do? In turn, 17 psalms speak of the way in which they invaded the land of Israel and created extraordinary hardship among the Jewish people. What I'd love to do today is to talk about the theme of injustice. Global injustice. How injustice is addressed at the cross of Jesus Christ. How Christ faced injustice to be able to reveal grace at our point of need. Psalm 73, along with its sister companion, Psalm 74, they are twin doors that open up that allow you and me to walk through the gateway into book three of the Psalms. And if there is one running theme throughout this entire book, it has to do with how, does God, how do God's people deal with unfair circumstances. So if you've grappled with that question, book three is what it's all about Love for you to have found your way there. I'm going to begin reading and take it down through verse 9. It's a psalm of Asaph who happened to be a musician in the courts of David. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind, and therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And here the psalmist is wondering, then why do they have it made? Why does it seem that, oddly enough, they're blessed and I... I'm facing unfair circumstances. I feel cursed. And yet, if you follow God's word, you're to experience the blessings. How do I reconcile these tensions on the journey of life that I find myself in? 
That's what we're going to be grappling with this morning, looking to God's word to answer such questions as we look to our Lord now in prayer. And Father, coming before you as people who, from all walks of life, these various services, as well as now those joining with us online, whether it be in the moments in which this exposition begins to unfold or in the days and weeks to come. My prayer is that you take your truth, which is timeless, and apply it to each person in a way that's timely. You know the struggles that are here. For some, it's been a very difficult week. And they're wrestling and they're grappling with the big questions of life. We want our worship services to be such that when we reach the point of the teaching of your word, we grapple with the big questions. But we do it in a way that's relevant, practical, strikes a chord in our hearts. Father, for those that know you as Lord and Savior, we have a purpose. It's to multiply followers of Jesus Christ. May we leave here today with that mission in mind. So these moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. Pray these things again on Jesus' name. Amen. Great question. That Oprah Winfrey asked Ellie Wiesel, what's that on your arm? Ah. Tell me about your tattoo. Now generally in today's culture, I find a a good on-ramp is to those that have tattoos to ask on. Tell me about your tattoo. What's the story? Because everybody has a life story. And oftentimes, tattoos have to do with the stories that that person has about life. He leaned forward. It read A-7713. It's on his left arm. The story began to unfold in front of uh, the audience. It was Hungary, May 1944. Jews had been gathered together in Hungary, and they were about to be shipped off to concentration camps. The Nazis seemed to have the upper hand. Life seemed so unfair. It would be to Auschwitz and later to Buchenwald. Little did they know at that time, the survivors, that they would be liberated on August 11th of 45 by the U.S. Third Army. And now here is this brilliant professor from the Boston University's Humanities Department answering questions about a book that has just been written 
he has penned that has, that has sold millions and millions of copies around the globe, translated into 30 various languages, entitled Night. What is it that you would want to communicate with us this morning? Winfrey asked him. He leaned forward. There may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice. But there must never be a time when we fail to protest. He would die in 2016. Two years later, there would be anti-Semitic graffiti found on the door of his birthplace. How do you handle the unfairness of life? For some, it might be a medical matter. Here this morning, if you're watching online, it could be a relational matter, something at work. But what we want to do now is to be able to plunge into the depths of God's word and try to understand how God would have us address these kinds of questions. There are three needs that I want to draw out for us from this passage of Scripture that we're, that, we're, that we're delving into this morning. And the first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 14. We're going to put it like this. That when the injustices of life, the unfairness of life, seems incredibly overwhelming to you. I want to begin by noting the assumptions that we're going to have to evaluate. Notice how he begins. Israel has been invaded. It seems like the oppressors have the upper hand. It seems like they're the blessed ones and the Jews are the cursed ones. So it seems this is the appearance of life at this moment. But you and I need to evaluate those conclusions. Is that really the case? When you are looking at the appearances of life, make absolutely certain you've got the right starting point for doing so. Notice where Asaph begins. Truly, God is good to Israel. That's astounding in the face of the invasions now that are being, that are being referred to throughout on these 17 Psalms of Book 3. And you might say to yourself, well, how do I understand this in the, in the unfairness of life that oftentimes gets thrust in front of me? Don't confuse the circumstances of life with the, confu with the goodness of God. When the circumstances of life seem bad, The goodness of God remains sure. 
your starting point will go a long way to help you to be able to understand the journey of life that you find yourself on. Have you started with the idea of the goodness of God revealed at the cross of Jesus Christ? There was unfairness that put Jesus Christ on that cross. But the goodness of God was seen when three days later Christ was raised from the grave. Truly, the psalmist says, even in the midst of the unfairness of life, God is good to Israel. And then this caveat to those who are pure in heart, these are the ones that get it who were able to make this distinction between the circumstances of life and the goodness of God, that even when the circumstances of life seem bad, the goodness of God remains sure. But now he's going to get honest with you. You need it. I need it. He's going to get very relevant with you now. Notice the but. You're up to verse 2. But as for me, even knowing that, even establishing that as my starting point for handling the unfairness of life, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For those who have spent any time in England, you know that when you stop at a place like Piccadilly Circus or wherever, and you're about to get off the tube, you will hear these words echoing throughout. Mind the step. It's a fascinating phrase. It requires you to be extraordinarily aware of the steps you're about to take. Now, In this journey of life, where life is a series of unfair events, mind the step. Sometimes we're on an incline. Sometimes it's a decline. Sometimes they're so close together that the natural tendency is to simply slip when we're not watching where we're going. Now the problem is, is that Asaph is recalling a time when his eyes were cast around him horizontally rather than looking toward God vertically. You ever done that? You're looking around and you're saying, that person has this. That person is experiencing that. They've got it good. I've got it bad. Where is God? It's in those kinds of situations where it's very easy, you see, to have a tendency to confuse the circumstances of life with the goodness of God. He says, I almost slipped at that point. Mind the step, he might say. My feet had almost stumbled. My, My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious. Ah, no. Now it's starting to come out. He's giving us the reason. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, now here's the challenge. Appearances create assumptions. And when that person appears to be blessed, 
We make the assumption then that God's favor rests with them and not with us. And so now here is Asaph and he's looking at all these oppressors of Israel. Israel is to be the people of the blessing. They're the ones at that point anticipating Messiah, but they're being oppressed, they're being opposed, they've been invaded by these forces. Now, watch the danger of coupling appearances with assumptions. Check out the assumptions now. They have no pangs until death. Really, Asaph? Their bodies are fat and sleek. How can you be fat and sleek at the same time, I want to know? One of my daughters-in-law is a dietitian. She's going to have to help me with verse, with verse 4 here. They are not in trouble as others are. How do you know, Asaph? That's an assumption. How do you know? In other words, what you're allowing for is that the unfair circumstances of life are beginning to weigh you down because the appearances are leading to assumptions that are not necessarily valid. Evaluate these things, okay? Not only the appearances that you might be focused upon, but the assumptions that you might be embracing. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. He goes on and on, doesn't he? Here's their voices. They scoff, speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Now, what have we said so far? First of all, watch your starting points. Second of all, don't confuse the circumstances of life with the goodness of God. Circumstances can be good, bad when life remains good. God remains good. Thirdly, watch out for the linkage between appearances and assumptions. Not everything that appears to be blessed is blessed. Israel is going through a hard time. For those that track the Middle East carefully, 2014 was not, a, was not a good year to be traveling in Israel. It was the summer, it was discovered that Hamas had been using supplies given by Israel of all groups for civil projects to build tunnels that would enable them to transport weapons and invade Israel. Invasion. That's what this psalm is all about. In the weeks before July 17th, Hamas terrorists scouted out the area where one of their tunnels would potentially end near the farming village of Sufa. Perfect. The time was populated a populated area of farmers concealed by tall wheat. Israel wouldn't stand a chance. The Israelites knew something was amiss. They just couldn't put their finger on it. It seemed like terrorists once again had the upper hand. 
But you see, the terrorists were missing out on something. According to Jewish customs, there's a biblical mandate requires farmers to harvest before taking a sabbatical year in which it's forbidden to harvest in Israel. Well, according to news accounts, on July 17th, terrorists exited their completed tunnel only to find an empty field. An empty open land. They attempted to attack. This, this attempt to attack happened to occur just after the sabbatical year had begun. And so the farmers were no longer harvesting. And without the tall wheat for cover, the terrorists were quickly spotted, intercepted by the Israeli defense forces, and a potential massacre was avoided because of this miracle. And the Jewish press tells us, looking at the history of Israel, it seems there are always greater miracles among their people, I would say yes. Check out three days later after the cross. Don't assume the cross was the be-all, end-all. There's more to come. And so while those at the cross looking at, at Jesus hanging there had their assumptions, he's cursed. Three days later, raised from the grave, we're blessed. Assumptions, appearances. When the injustices of life seem overwhelming, know first of all the assumptions we need to evaluate and the appearances they're closely associated with. And then you're able to move forward through this journey we know as life. But now, there's your first need. When the, adjust, when the injustices of life seem overwhelming, you begin by noting the assumptions here that well, they need to be evaluated. We're going to jump ahead. Let's go to 15 through 20. A second need. Second of all, I want to draw out for you the perspective that we need to develop. Found here again in these verses. Stay with me. We're up to verse 15 now at this point. Here is, here's Asaph, and he's, and he's saying, If I had said I will speak thus, in other words, based upon appearances combined with assumptions, and I came up with wrong conclusions about where is God in the midst of all this that I'm experiencing, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Something happens here. Don't miss it. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This whole idea of the goodness of God and the circumstances of life. Look at verse 17. You there? until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now he's got it figured out. God is good even when terrorists appear in their bed. 9-11. 
It's the morning of 9-11 of 2001. I'm being vaccinated. I'm being vaccinated to uh, give a series of lectures and teachings in the Middle East. Meanwhile, the Twin Towers are coming down. And the news reporters are trying to figure out why is this happening and what is taking place. Meanwhile, the nurse is crying. She says, Gary, I don't want to give you the next shot. Please don't go over there. I come back to my office and it's uh, it's a voicemail from the president of the Evangelical Free Church of America at that time, Bill Hamill, buddy of mine. And he says, Gary, don't go to the Middle East. An hour later, my phone rings. I pick it up. It's my father. And he says, Gary, I know that voice, don't go. By this point, I'm picking up, there's a pattern here. I head into the sanctuary that night. Several hundred people had already gathered together for prayer. News analysts couldn't fully interpret what was happening. But when people lack the ability to interpret what's happening, we need to seek the presence of God to gain perspective from God. It's time to go to the sanctuary. Throughout the Old Testament, sanctuary in broader terms was was Jerusalem. In narrower terms, sanctuary was the temple. Combined, they gave you this sense of this is where you pursue the presence of God. Now this morning, if you're going through difficult times of unfairness, first of all, check the assumptions. Evaluate them. Determine your starting point. Is it the goodness of God or is it the circumstances of life? Keep moving forward. Think them through. And then move from the assumptions we need to evaluate to the perspective we need to develop. And I would argue at this point, when you pursue the presence of God, you gain perspective from God. This is what's happening here. He's able to say, when I thought how to understand this, couldn't get it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I get it. I understand their end. They're going to die. Their, their supposed blessed state is short-lived, temporal, not permanent. Dr. Joel Cho is a hospitalist in San Francisco. Position like one of my sons has as a physician. He is a physician in, in 
a setting in San Fran where you see the tough stuff of life. He writes, when I care for terminally ill patients, I ask if they would like to see a, a chaplain, a pastor, or if they attend a church. It's my gauge to determine if they have any spiritual interests. At this point in my career in San Francisco, I must have asked that question several hundred times, but only a handful of patients have ever said yes. Here in California, here in San Fran, death is initially a confusing concept for the terminally ill. I haven't seen here too many tears as I break the unfortunate news that a patient has a fatal disease. Instead, what's more common is a look of bewilderment. Though everybody knows death's inevitable, most don't know what to do with the news. So, what to do? They don't take time to evaluate life. After the initial shock, most patients go back to living the remainder of their days as they always had. I've never seen a patient here reverse their philosophy of life because the end is finally here. But then again, flip side. One morning I came to work and as usual, was assigned a new list of hospitalized patients to take care of what, we, uh, what, was, what included a middle-aged man, incurable disease. My job was to make absolutely certain his pain was under reasonable control, then discharge him from the hospital so he could go home and spend his final days. When I walked into this man's dimly lit room, I saw him quiet. Pensive, reflective, yet surprisingly calm and pleasant. I could tell he was in quite a bit of pain, but there was an ambiance of peace that filled the room. After discussing his pain regiment and related medical issues, I asked my usual question, would you like to see a pastor? Once again, I got the usual no but this time for a different reason. With a big smile on his face, he answered, Dr. Cho, I'm a Christian. I know that God is with me. I sense his presence. I'm okay. What followed was an extraordinarily short, delightful conversation with a brother in Christ about the joy and the hope we have in Jesus. With his permission, I laid hands, my hands on him and prayed for him. Then I discharged him from the hospital with enough pain meds to control his symptoms on his way home. That was many years ago. And when I see him next time, I'm glad he won't need a doctor. Perspective. When you pursue the presence 
of God. You gain perspective from God. And when life treats you unfairly, don't confuse God with such life. Third, as you're pondering this, I'm reflecting upon this. Third, note furthermore the refuge that we need to seek out of verse 21 down through verse 28. Skipping ahead a little bit here, beyond 18 through 20, for the sake of time. He's honest with you once more, getting highly autobiographical. When my soul was embittered, and you've ever been there? Embittered soul? When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. And some of us may have been around people, or maybe that was us at one point, always on the attack, because life was treating us badly. But there's a nevertheless here. Nevertheless, back to the presence of God and our presence before God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. He's got your right hand. Sorry, left-handed people. You're being guided, and you will receive me to glory. Bear in mind the groan precedes the glory. It's the stuff of life. Just got a question for you. You're up to verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart may fail. Mark what comes next. But God. But God is the strength of my heart. My portion forever. Joseph is reflecting upon his time in Egypt. Ever been betrayed? His brothers had betrayed him, sold him into slavery. Now he's kind of like vice president of Egypt. Reversals. And they are coming to him in need of food. There's famine in the land. They look at him upon realization that their, that their brother they had sold into slavery is now the one who, who has the purse strings. He says to them, do not fear. As for you, you meant it evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
David has been anointed to become king of Israel. The current king, Saul, is jealous. In 1 Samuel 23, verse 14, Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him, David, into Saul's hand. In Acts chapter 13, reflecting upon the cross of Christ. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. In Romans 5, verse 8, But God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and onward to 4, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Everything seems to be going wrong on this life journey, but God. Everything looked bleak when it came to matters of that cross. But God creates a three-day-later scenario when the late Charles Evans Hughes, in his capacity as Secretary of State, was speaking at a Pan-American conference. He told his interpreter to give him a summarized translation of what was being spoken in Spanish. But then he said this, quote, While a running translation is ample for my purpose, I want you to give me every word after the speaker says, but. For you see, what follows but is of the utmost importance. Did you notice in Scripture, verses do not end with the word but? There is more to be written. I would say this morning, if life has treated you unfair, remember your starting point. God is good. But is not found at the end of your sentence of life. It's in the middle of the sentence, which means to be continued. God's got more words. He's given you more story. He's given you more life. And he's given you more purpose to multiply disciples for him. But God, what do you do with that? In verse 27, for behold, it's a visual word. Those who are far from you shall perish. Now he's got the perspective. He's pulled together this, this willingness to evaluate appearances and assumptions. He's gained perspective by going to the sanctuary of life. And now, out of all this, he brings it home. But for me, you're up to verse 28. Close the loop. How did he begin? God is good. How does he end? But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. 
that I may tell of all your works. Francois Mauriac was a Nobel Prize winning writer. He befriended Elie Wiesel. And he said, Wiesel, that story you have about the Holocaust, it's not meant to stay within. It's meant to be told from without. Start writing. Wiesel started writing. Grappling with the injustices of life. He would pen these words, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. And the ultimate protest was answered three days later, when in the midst of the injustices that Jesus Christ endured going to and being upon that cross, three days later, but God raised him from the grave. Let's stand together. Pastorally, staff knows that we deal with the unfairness of life day after day, week after week, medically, relationally, job-wise, a host of unforgettable and maybe unexpected dynamics in this journey we call life. So Father, equip us now to embrace the need to be able to address the assumptions, the need furthermore to be able to gain the perspective that a fallen world like ours needs when it doesn't quite understand the whys of life and the refuge we need to seek. When the psalmist ends with these words, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And so, Father, as we complete this teaching, we end asking that you equip us that we might tell of all your works as we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.